Coming up, another Labour leadership hopeful fades away as the candidates battle over who can say the nicest things about Jeremy Corbyn. Meanwhile, it's only a week till Brexit and everyone stopped talking about it. Blissful. Or is it? Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast. Like most of us, I started the year with a vague sense of hopeful optimism. Maybe, maybe we could put the arguments and the screaming in the past and start to live a more civilised life. But here we are at the fag end of January. Some guy that I had, frankly, never heard of until this time last week has apparently become the poster boy for entitled white guys moaning about how hard it is to be a white guy have to say I hadn't noticed it being especially difficult, but then again I don't have an album to promote by saying hateful things about people I've never met. Meanwhile, just to confirm that we no longer deserve nice things, Terry Jones goes and dies. There is, it seems, little room in our lives for silliness, which does itself seem rather silly. Anyway, this is the 150th podcast since we started this nearly five years ago. And among the names that we've endlessly said during that time is that of Jeremy Corbyn. Why, only last month his was the name on the lips of millions of people. Admittedly, not all of them were saying nice things, but still. Now poor old Jeremy Corbyn trundles into the House of Commons for a weekly bad-tempered argument with Boris Johnson to which no one is paying attention. And we have another three months of this lame-duck opposition leader to endure before his replacement is chosen. That group of potential replacements is a bit smaller now after Jess Phillips dropped out. She came to the conclusion there's little point in speaking truth to power if power isn't listening. And power in this case is the half million or so members of the Labour Party who will make this decision. And that has skewed the conversation in some rather odd ways. Let's bring Robert Meakin in at this stage. Because Robert, we, we talked about this a little bit last time. To the untrained eye a party that had suffered its worst election results since 1935 would want to put as much distance as possible between itself and the leader who led them into this hole. But in this contest, you have a group of candidates who are desperate to avoid saying anything that could remotely be interpreted as critical of Jeremy Corbyn. Lisa Nandy, who is the only one left in the race who has genuinely spoken about the need to you know, change or die, has said this week that Corbyn does not deserve to be trashed. Now, look, I get it. They are talking to half a million people who are largely fans of Jeremy Corbyn. But but aren't they giving in to this delusional Corbyn fanboy thing that somehow he won the argument while also losing the election in an earth-shattering fashion? Yeah, there is. there's still this uh, popular belief within the Labour membership um, ranks that somehow he's... Uh, Corbyn is some sort of honourable martyr to the cause that he got all the arguments right, but there was some dastardly conspiracy against him and he was stopped from having the, the victory he so richly deserved. And the people who are now in the running to succeed him are well aware that that, that, that view holds sway in the party membership and to to, to divert from, from that narrative is, is a very risky one. You know, you, you have this 
ongoing situation where they, they, there's one guy who rather inconveniently won three general elections in a row for them who just can't be mentioned by name, as in one Mr Blair, while Jeremy Corbyn, people are still singing his praises after the worst election defeat in decades. It is the kind of stuff you normally hear from indoctrinated members of a religious cult. At least Nandi, we should say, has actually had a pretty good week. She's confirmed her place on the ballot in large part because she got the GMB union to support her. So she will be there when we get to the stage of Labour leadership debates on TV, when perhaps the members might start to think about who is better positioned to, to win over those voters they lost. And if she can walk that tightrope you know, between confronting the need for change while also satisfying the activists who still seem to think that if you look at it from a certain point of view, actually Labour won the last two elections, you know, maybe she could break through. She's also got the support of Jess Phillips, who dropped out this week. I get that, considering, you know, why, if you're not going to win, why put yourself through this extraordinary hell? I do understand that Jess Phillips is very much a Marmite figure in the Labour Party. But, lads, seriously, you might want to stop hurling abuse at people who are technically on the same side as you. Credit, I think, to Jess Phillips in this regard. I think we sometimes go on about you know, politicians, your frontline politicians being rather delusional. Uh, one Barry Gardner, if you recall not long ago, talking himself up as a as a possible contender. You know, it's I, I think it was just sanity on uh, Jess Phillips's part. And she, she clearly wasn't in a winning position. And so she has sensibly and, and logically got behind a candidate who potentially is in the running. In terms of... Um, Lisa Nandy, she seems to have had a good few days. Again, she handles herself well on, on the airwaves, under scrutiny. She, yeah, she, she's combative, but I think in a, in a non sort of hysterical way. She can look after herself. She, yeah, she, she's on top of her brief. She, she looks, she looks a natural authority figure more and more, which is crucial when you're choosing a leader. Inevitably, I mean, I, th- I think the British electorate can sniff those people a mile off, and they they can sniff someone who hasn't got that authority. One Jeremy Corbyn comes to mind. So I think it's been a good few days for her. It'd be dangerous to get too carried away. The media are certainly impressed with the way she's performed. Obviously, there's a section of the Labour Party who like her. But I think you have to go back to that uh, that, that huge chunk of Corbynites who are holding sway in the actual in the Labour membership. Are they really going to be willing to go that far? Right now, I'm looking at the bookies before. They still see it as a battle between Keir Starmer and Rebecca Long-Bailey with Lisa Nandy in third. Not always a good guy just to take a look at what the bookies are thinking, where the money is. So it'd be very interesting to see if she can break through into that final two. Well, certainly the bookies have Keir Starmer, you know, on average at about 65 to 70% chance of, of winning this, which I find surprising. I mean, look, he's playing safe as well. He's been doing this, you know, no one should trash the last four years. He then goes on to say, you know, no one should trash the last Labour government either. But I can't get past this idea that the Labour membership is not the same as the rest of the country. And while we all think, the bookies all think, you know, Keir Starmer has sort of marched ahead of everyone else. He's tied up all these nominations. He, he's looking like a sort of dead cert at this stage. Rebecca Long-Bailey has these big inbuilt advantages within the system. She's got Momentum. Momentum, who, by the way, brilliantly proved their commitment to open democracy. They did ballot their members on whether or not Momentum should formally support Rebecca Long-Bailey for leader, but they didn't ballot their members on any other candidates. It was, do you want to support Rebecca Long-Bailey or no one? No one else got a look in. You know, she's going around saying, I'm not continuity Corbyn, while sort of winking knowingly at the Corbyn fan base by talking about mandatory reselection of MPs and ideas about preserving intellectual purity in the movement. 
the bit I don't get, though, is how has she managed to convince people that she is the flag carrier for Corbynism, the one more heave argument? Because she only joined the Labour Party in 2010. She only became an MP in 2015. She was immediately on the front bench because so few existing Labour MPs would take front bench positions. Now, look, she did very well. You know, given the opportunity, she, she grabbed it with both hands. She's done well. But this idea that she's some sort of lifelong Labour street fighter, it's just not true. No, but she's been she's been talked up from a very early stage as well. I mean, I, I remember, you know, going back a few years now, the likes of Shami Chakrabarty already saying, we've got this Rebecca Long-Bailey, you just wait, look out for her, she's the star of the future. She was very, very quickly identified, like probably a, a, a star footballer in the youth rank. She was very quickly spotted as a potential goal scorer for them. So it, she's had a lot of goodwill behind her in terms of the, of the hard left of the Labour Party. And that is why she cannot be discounted. Now, I would say to her credit, I think she handles herself pretty well, again, in, in terms of uh, media appearances. She seems, yeah, she, she comes across in a quite amiable a calm way. She doesn't get ruffled. She's always on top of her brief. I say she. I say she's quite. She's quite pleasant. I think the way she the way she comes across, and certainly doesn't come across in the same socially awkward way that Jeremy Corbyn does. So I, I think she has advantages. She's clearly right now still in a potentially strong position. So it's going to be fascinating to see if she's the one who can hunt down Keir Starmer. Whoever does end up winning this, and we won't know that until the beginning of April, Labour is going to have to up its game. And I think the first test to whoever the new leader is is how many A-listers they can get in the shadow cabinet. I think we forget that Jeremy Corbyn's team, you know, was very much a reserves, a second 11. It was made up of the people who were still willing to serve after that failed uprising by Labour MPs after the referendum. Now, as I say, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Keir Starmer, who also was only elected in 2015, you know, these are people who shone through that process. Others, frankly, have been promoted far beyond their abilities. And behind them on the back benches were much sharper minds, much better performers in the Commons on television. And you can't do that anymore. If you're going to rebuild Labour in opposition, you have to start by holding the government to account. And you can't do that if you constantly field a B team. You know, there are some genuinely, genuinely weak performers in Boris Johnson's cabinet. Pretty Patel, Matt Hancock. These are people who are not in command of their brief, who cannot stand up to sustained questioning. But you need people who can wipe the floor with them. And while there is this idea, oh, we'll get a new leader and everything will be fine. If you get this wrong, the potential is that you could be in even deeper trouble at the next election. There are 18 Labour seats after last month that would fall to the Conservatives on a swing of less than 2% at the next election. So the idea that, that this is a temporary blip that you could just easily overwhelm might not be true. No, and it's it's not a particularly fashionable thing to say at the moment, but there there is still plenty of talent inside the Labour Party, inside the Labour Parliamentary Party. Unfortunately for the Labour Party, not enough of those people on the front bench. I think it's been the most pathetic looking Labour front bench in, in modern memory. And I think they've been rightly exposed at times. And that, why? Because... Much, much of the talent in the Labour Party simply refused to serve under Jeremy Corbyn. Or when they did go on the front bench of Jeremy Corbyn, they didn't like what they saw and bid a hasty retreat. So, yeah, you, you're right. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a huge task for whoever wins to somehow bring some sort of a coalition of talents back to that Labour front bench so we've got a potent and credible opposition again. You would think right now if Re Rebecca Long-Bailey gets it, will there be people still reluctant to come back on board? Because they'll see her, as you, see, as, uh, as you say, as the continuity Corbyn. 
you would imagine, you would hope while Keir Starmer is positioning himself more to the left presently, you would imagine that more people would be willing to come back on board under Starmer and certainly in the case of uh, Lisa Nandy as well. But that, that's a big, big task because it's been so substandard the last couple of years, never mind people's actual politics. I'm talking about the personalities, the political you know, forces and the way they, the political performers, the way they handle themselves in Parliament, the way they handle themselves in the media. These people just haven't looked up to it at all. At times have been laughable. I think we know some of the people we're talking about. So big task for them. But first of all, of course, it's just whoever gets over the line in April. So, Have you got everything ready? Have you got your English sparkling wine, your Cornish brie, your pork pie ready for the big Brexit party that you're obviously throwing next Friday? Yes, next Friday. Had you forgotten or something? Actually, it wouldn't be that surprising. Once the election result was in, the conversation about Brexit came to a sudden halt. Now it's very nearly here. Nobody's really talking about it. I presume, Robert, that is exactly what Downing Street... Once, they'll make a massive fuss about it on the 31st of January. We know we're getting a prime ministerial address. And then as soon as possible, they'll move on to other stuff because they don't want us to focus on the trade talks. I think there's also a public exhaustion with the thing, which, of course, Boris is well aware of, that yeah, people people were just mad with boredom, stroke anger and frustration watching that tiresome process uh, grind out in Parliament last year with all the skullduggery and cynical party politicking that was going on alongside the Brexit debate. People lost patience with it. And one of the many reasons you could say why Boris ended up with such a, a clear majority to get things done, as he as he would argue. In the eyes of much of the public now, you know, Boris has won this argument and they're trusting him to get on with the detail. Now, we know that could come back to bite him. We know that there's all, all manner... Of, of torturous uh, negotiation ahead. But I think in the in the eyes of the general public, they've had enough of it for now. They've given it to a government to sort out because the previous government didn't have the majority to do it. The British public has said, right, be true to your word. We're leaving it with you. And, and Boris is able then you know, to, to rather go under the radar with it to a degree, just because there's a, simply a lack of appetite for us to go back into the, the devil of the detail again. We will be thrown back into that pretty soon, though. Boris Johnson apparently wants trade talks with the EU and the US to be staged in parallel and for them to more or less begin on the 1st of February. And we and we may be having a very early test of where global Britain stands in the world because at the moment, the plan is that the UK will press ahead with its proposal for a 2% tax on tech firms like Google and Facebook, most of them based in America. The United States has threatened to hit back with tariffs. It's talking about the car industry in particular at the moment. Now, France backed down on something like this a few months ago. The US, with characteristic style, said that they'd tax cheese and wine in that case. Downing Street has been talking about if the US is serious about imposing tariffs. Well, you know, tariffs can hurt people on both sides of the Atlantic. So at the moment... It sounds like we're kind of shaping up for a mini trade war with the people we want to negotiate a trade deal with. Indeed. And I was watching uh, President Trump in Davos today, the disparaging things he was saying about the EU. You do think, my goodness, this is a a strange two headed monster to be dealing with, with very, very 
contrasting agendas. So I don't, I, I do wonder, it, they, they talk about this idea of you know, get, getting going straight away on February the 1st. I wonder that that might be more of a broad brushstrokes affair. And I think further into the deeper water, we'll we'll start to see, see agendas and the, and the inevitable anger and frustration um, emerge. Now, I remember being told, I can't remember who it was who said it. I think he's got a reasonably big government job now. But anyway, I remember being told that Brexit would trigger a waterfall of cash. I think it was £350 million a week. And even my schoolboy maths, I know that that means the half million pound cost of ringing Big Ben to mark the occasion would be one seven hundredth of that massive weekly cash dividend. And yet, somehow, we can't afford it. Instead, the Brexiteers who repeatedly told us this decision was our route to Nirvana found themselves reduced to rattling tins and begging for the cash before eventually just abandoning the whole thing, their hopes of ringing the bell at an end. And talk, Robert, of bell ends leads me to Mark Francois, uh, one of the leading lights behind this increasingly strident demand to ring Big Ben on Brexit Day. I mean, I suppose it's a reminder of the extent to which this debate has, right back at the beginning, all the way through, turned on symbols that shouldn't really have that much significance. You know, blue passports, which it turned out we could always have had if we wanted to. We must ring Big Ben. It's a sort of dad's army Englishness, but it honestly doesn't fill you with enormous hope for this bright new world, that this is the sort of thing people get fixated on. No, it's a it's it's a typical sort of British comic subplot amid what, of course, has been a hugely significant event. I mean, I mean, we cannot deny, as I say, the historic significance of what is about to occur. That we're leaving the European Union, what a, a huge moment in uh, modern uh, British history. But as you say, ringing Big Ben and then all the the, the, the obsession about it and, and the talk of how we were the vague talk of how we were going to fund this did quickly descend uh, in, into farce. And you say it did have all the hallmarks of a of a Captain Mannering plot going going wrong. You know, they could just play a tape of Big Ben. That that's that's what they do on Radio Four every night before the news. They just play a tape of Big Ben, and no one seems to have suffered unduly as a consequence. No, and also people, you know, in, in terms of in terms of Westminster, in terms of up and down the land, are of course, perfectly entitled, more than entitled to celebrate as boisterously as they like. They won the argument. They got their way. You know, if it, if it, if it bid, although it will appall many remain inclined people, just think if, they, if they'd somehow scuppered Brexit, they'd certainly be celebrating on the streets. So it is their moment to, to savour and they do they do deserve to enjoy it. But as you say, in terms of the actual detail of, of paying a, a huge bundle of cash for Big Ben to somehow be repaired to give out a bong just doesn't, doesn't really seem all that crucial in the scheme of things. But as, as you were saying, it, 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 there is that desperate public desire to not talk about it anymore. But it's just bizarre that, you know, if, if like me and I think you as well, you spend the whole day with Sky News on in the background, like some sort of wallpaper of misery, there is a ticker in the corner of the screen counting down the days, hours, minutes, seconds until Brexit happens. And uh, we have been convulsed in this for so long. And here we are right on the edge of it happening. And 
it's like it's not happening at all. It's almost like, you know, you know now we live in the era of box sets when you've, you've, you've watched a sort of really good sort of HBO Sky Atlantic drama, but it's, it's that six seasons in. And frankly, it's just started to tire. And by the end, it, all the, the plot has got so convoluted, you don't quite care what happens anymore. And it's almost got to that, I would say. I draw that parallel that we've just, we've gone through all the, the supposedly juicy stuff, all the high drama, all the lunacy. And I just think there's a bit of audience exhaustion, to be honest. One thing that we do know the government wants to do after Brexit is level up the north of England and the Midlands. Boris Johnson admits the votes that got him that majority were only loaned to him and he'll need to show progress if he's to keep them. So, some big ideas are called for, like moving the House of Lords to York. Now look, York is a lovely city. You should go to York. If you've never been, go to York. Email me. I'll give you a list of lovely pubs and restaurants. But it's probably not the best home for half of the UK Parliament when the other half is 200 miles away. Robert, imagine the scene at the state opening of Parliament. The Queen arrives in York and dispatches Black Rod to summon the MPs. Black Rod then hops on the 942 to King's Cross or sits in traffic on the M1 for a few hours. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a Skype call. Maybe instead of having the door slammed in Black Rod's face... MPs just answer the Skype call and then hang up immediately. Yeah, I have to say I did have some sympathy for Black Rod when when hearing about this this possibility and how it might work. Um, I have to declare an interest. York is one of my favourite cities in England. I love York. I'm going there very shortly. And the last thing I want, to be honest, from a selfish point of view, are political Westminster types going up there and, to be honest, spoiling the place. From a selfish point of view, I just want them to keep away. I, 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 I hope I understand the need to somehow represent uh, di- different parts of the country politically, but please stay away from York. It's also, you know, away from the sort of japester element of it, it's a surprisingly empty proposal because immediately after the election, there was this talk of, you know, the test of this is going to be jobs and investment in northern cities, the state of the NHS, the state of public services. It's not a headline-grabbing PR stunt, which kind of suggests that you're not serious about it. The, the, the test is how, you, how many industries you attract to places like York or Newcastle or Litchfield or Lincoln or Wigan or something. It's, that's the test, not you know, setting up some kind of tourist attraction. Yes, again, I, it, it strikes me as a, a nice idea over over a meeting somewhere in Whitehall where this was this was bounced off and sounded out. But really, I'm I'm not sure. A great deal more thought has been given to it. I did hear one uh, Labour frontbencher rather sarcastically say earlier this week there was more chance of Boris Johnson riding Shergar across York Minster, around York Minster, than uh, them going to York. And he, he may well be proved right. For those listeners who don't know who Shergar is, just look it up on Wikipedia. Bit of historic satire for you there. Um, look, one way to improve transport infrastructure in the north, though, would be to force government ministers and employees to rely on it. So, I don't know, maybe it's not such a crap idea after all. We'll leave it there, I think, for now. Do get in touch via Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. We're at Party Games Pod at all three. Hey, why not send us a picture of your Brexit party? of all the food and the bunting. It would be lovely. You can also listen back to the archive, all 150 episodes worth, at partygamespodcast.com. But until next time, thank you to Robert. Thanks to you for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.